This is the Serial at Midnight Podcast, Episode 4. Hello and welcome to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland, and I will be your host for this and every episode of the Serial at Midnight Podcast. It's important that I introduce myself, right? You want to know who you're listening to, because here's the thing. I've done upwards of about 900 videos on YouTube. This is the uh, this is the official podcast of SerialAtMidnight.com. There's also an official YouTube channel for SerialAtMidnight.com. But at the beginning of every single video, maybe not every single one of them, but most of those videos, I introduce myself at the beginning of every video. And I say, hey, this is Heath. Welcome to Serial at Midnight. My name is Heath, and we're going to talk about blah, 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 whatever it is. Uh, and people go like, hey, cool video, Serial. I'm like, you're not even trying. <laughs> you didn't even try. You missed like the the fifth word of the, of the video. Uh, listen, I don't want to run too long in the intro here. We've got a long interview. This one is from, we've got a blast coming at you from the archives. So uh, in the summer of 2022, I was very fortunate to be able to talk to Kenneth Johnson, the man, the myth, the legend. We know Kenneth Johnson for so much of his creation. He's a real hero for sci-fi and genre genre fans uh he is the worked on the six million dollar man he was the showrunner for the bionic woman uh the incredible hulk is his show talking about the the bill bixby lou ferrigno show v the original miniseries uh alien nation the television series this man is responsible for so much as if that's not enough he's also a novelist and when I interviewed him in the summer of 2022, he had written a novel that had not yet been published yet. It was still forthcoming. Uh, the novel is called Holmes Coming, as in Sherlock Holmes Coming. Uh, but as this podcast is going up, that book was released yesterday. So it was uh, uh, an early November 2022 release date. And I thought that would be really appropriate to tie this archival interview uh, it's still very relevant. I mean, as I'm recording this podcast, it's only a couple of months old. But uh, he talked about so much. You know, the thing about Kenneth Johnson is that he's talked to so many people. You watch the DVD, uh, you know, the special features on DVDs and on um, you know Blu-rays and things like that. He's got so many stories, and he can just talk and tell those stories. But I wanted to do as much as I could to kind of get him off of off of script, and so I wanted to ask him about certain relationships. I wanted to ask him about Vincent Price. Uh, we got to talk about how he would have ended The Incredible Hulk. You know, there's these TV movies uh, that kind of wrapped up The Incredible Hulk story after he was gone that he didn't have anything to do with. How would he have ended The Incredible Hulk? We find out in this episode so many uh, stories and recollections from Kenneth Johnson, a, a true giant in uh in entertainment so it is my pleasure to introduce to you kenneth johnson without further ado here's the interview you know the mike douglas show was oprah's audience was very large you know our audience was 10 times the size of oprah's we had 90 million people a week watching the, the douglas show so everybody who had something to sell heath was on the show. Every TV star, movie star, uh, author, uh, cook, you know, whatever, wanted to get on the show because it was a huge platform. And um, interestingly, the guy that hired me to be a producer on The Douglas Show, the guy who was the executive producer, a young guy, in those days he was young, his name was Roger Ailes. 
and um, uh, and, and Roger also had that quality that the politicians had of just being able to draw you in because when they asked me if I'd like to come and be a producer, I was producing and directing in New York. And they said, we'd like you to come to Westinghouse, said, we'd like you to come and be a producer on the Douglas show. And I said, I want to go make movies, you know, uh, this is, this is not... and I uh, said, so just go meet, just go meet Roger. He's an interesting guy. And you walk into the room with Roger Ailes and you immediately know you are not the smartest person in the room. But I got to meet a lot of amazing, amazing people. You know? And uh, so I look back at it. And also the other thing too, um, we, that I got out of it, I didn't realize till later, was I was working every day live six times a week, 90 minutes a day uh, in front of a live audience. I mean, we had uh, three or 400 people in the Douglas Show audience. Uh, and I got so that I didn't need to look at the audience to see if something was playing well. I could just feel them on my back, you know? And when I came to Hollywood, uh, I realized that I had brought that with me. And when I was standing beside a camera watching a performance, I had that whole audience sense of how is this really playing, which is a, a, a wonderful attribute that so many film directors never have a chance to experience, you know, or, or understand. And it's, uh, uh, so it helped me in, in many, many, many ways, besides just all the gazillions of people I got to meet. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I'm sure that that training helps you in a way, like that's education that I'm sure I mean, if they could, if they could sell that, you know, if you could sell that kind of an education, that would be invaluable. Well, that's it. It's, uh, I remember, uh, I mean, you know, it just becomes an everyday thing. Oh, Paul Newman's coming in. Hey, Paul, how are you? Nice to meet you. And you realize that they're, they're just regular folks for the most part. Although I did swoon when Martin Luther King walked in the door to my office, I got to say, that was like, Deep breath time, and uh, and but but um, and you know to, you're standing at a piano next to Judy Garland as she's rehearsing over the rainbow, and you go, wait a minute, what fantasy world am I living in here? Uh, but my quick story was with George C. Scott. I had brought him in to surprise somebody that uh, we were having on the show, and he had worked with. And I went in to talk to, to, to Mr. Scott and we'd hidden him up in one of the other executives offices and he was sitting there having a steak and uh, making notes on a script he was about to start doing called Patton. And, um, uh, and I said, I gotta tell you, Mr. Scott, I am just so intimidated standing here talking to you because I think you are so incredibly talented. I gotta step all over my tongue. And, and he had a big laugh and he said, Kenny, let me tell you about when I met Olivier. You know, and I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? He said, I was over to England, this big tea over in England, you know, and I looked around and said, oh my God, I'm in a room with Olivier. I'm in a room with Olivier. Oh my God. I'll have to. And he said, and then he started walking over to me. And I, I, I was so nervous. He said, I stood up to say hello and I spilled my tea all over him. <laughs> so it was, I, it made me realize that everybody's got somebody, you know, it's a, uh, uh, there's a photo of uh, at the premiere of City Lights, 1932, I think, at the Los Angeles Theater in Hollywood, Chaplin's movie. And there's a photo, a two shot of Chaplin and Einstein. And I've always wondered which of them was the more starstruck. <laughs> you know, was it Charlie because he was with Albert or Albert because he was with Charlie? It's, um, you know, everybody's got somebody. But, That's right. Uh, what you wasn't it during your tenure at the Mike Douglas show that you became friends with uh, Vincent Price when he would come? Absolutely. Uh, Vincent came to do the show a couple of times. And, and one time um, I said, hey, you know, you're so connected to the, the world of Edgar Allan Poe. Why, how about I just set you at the podium and give you a little bit of uh, the telltale heart to read? And we turned the lights down and Vincent just started reading this, this, uh, but reading like, 
only Vincent could read it. I mean, he just drew you in, and I um, uh, and it was so. And the audience was just starstruck and and stunned about the performance. And when I first came to Hollywood, he was one of the first people I went to. He said, "Well, he first he said you must come to me, see me when we were in Hollywood. You have to meet Mary and Victoria, my daughter." And uh, and Vincent was great. And uh, and I suggested the idea that we do a, an hour uh, special of him enacting, not just reading, but enacting four of Poe's stories uh, that were told, that were written in the first person. Mm -hmm. So they were they lent themselves to being performed. Um, and, uh, and we did that, uh, and it was, uh, breathtaking. We rehearsed it for, for several weeks, uh, at, at the, uh, it was the Masonic Lodge there, right across from, uh, Grauman's Chinese. Now the Jimmy Kimmel show comes out of there. Um, but, uh, yeah, Vincent and I rehearsed and, and it was so great because you think, okay, here's a guy that was already doing Song of Bernadette uh, on the Fox lot the day that I was born, you know, and uh, and how do how can I help him as a, but it, you know he was just an actor. Once we started working, you know, it was like, what do you think of this? And we would bounce back and forth, and he was he was great. And and the the most rewarding thing to me about the piece was that Vincent, in several interviews, said that he felt that it was the uh, absolute best work he had done in Hollywood in 30 years. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. And, and, uh, and we were real, real close friends uh, until, uh, until he died. And, and we should tell people we're, you, you're talking about uh, an evening with Edgar Allan Poe is I believe the mm -hmm. title of the actual, you, That's wait, it. you wrote it, you produced it and you directed it, didn't you? Yeah, uh, I, I, we did the adaptation. Uh, my friend David Welch, who was one of my classmates in high school, uh, and also something of a writer, we went through it together to, to try to just thin it out a little bit as it needed to be and edit a little bit for the production. But uh, but yeah, I produced and directed it as well. And, um, uh, and it was... Uh, it was a glorious experience because uh, working with such a genius and uh, uh, and ending up with a product that was was really stunning and it's still available on DVD and uh, you know probably streaming somewhere too, but uh, it's worth seeing just to watch this magical man. <laughs> you know, it's great. Yeah, well, it's an interesting point in his career too because he was as we got into the 60s and into the you know, so 60s transition in the 70s i think he found himself in a different place maybe he was doing things i'm thinking of like the dr fives movies and uh you know madhouse and things like that i love this i love vincent price just in general now i never got to meet him but uh i do have one of my prized possessions a viewer actually sent this to me it's a it was a it's one of his cookbooks and I open, <laughs> I open the cookbook and they're on the first page it's been autographed by vincent price and so that was uh -huh. like whoa that meant whoa. a lot to me yeah. yeah no that's great yeah when i first came out um i spent a lot of time at his home he and mary had bought uh, this old spanish mansion on beverly glen 520 beverly glen it's still there up on a hilltop kind of thing and they, they bought it in 1950 i think for like fifty thousand dollars you know and now it's worth <laughs> gazillions but it had this huge cathedral ceiling uh, in the living room and and all of his pre-columbian artifacts because he was you know he's a great collector of pre-columbian art and and a kitchen of course he was a gourmand and um, uh, and it, the kitchen was was the size of my office. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was fabulous. And um, uh, and he'd go in and we'd have, he'd make incredible lunches for us. And it was uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. Well, do you have any stories about him? I, I'm not. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but is there well, anything? I, I, well, yeah. One of the things I, you know, when we were when we were doing when I first met him, when we were doing the Douglas show, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I talked to him about what a shame. 
it was that he had gotten so typecast into doing the Edgar Allan Poe things because, you know, you do House of Wax and it suddenly makes a gazillion dollars and American International, Sam Arkoff, uh, the head of, you know, gets his tenant, gets his claws into Vincent. And, and then, uh, and he did all the wonderful Corman pictures with uh, um, the, the, uh, the, you know, the Edgar Allan Poe pictures. And some of them are really, really good. Yeah. Uh, it's not that, but still, he had gotten typecast into this corner, and I said, Is it, "Was it frustrating to you as an actor?" Because I remember him from *Song of Bernadette* and from so many other things where he, he was really an actor, you know. And he worked with uh, Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater, uh, both uh, on radio and uh, and in New York. Um, and he said, "Oh my dear, no, I'm I'm working. I'm a working actor. That's what I want to be, you know. And I have fun with what I do. And uh, uh, so he was he was very content and never for a moment felt like uh, he should have been doing more important things, you know. Uh, and uh, but I think he particularly got his uh, his teeth into the Poe piece that we did because well, first of all, it was an hour of me, you know, and uh, uh, and every actor loves that." Uh, uh, and also, particularly when they've got the gifts that that he had, uh, it was it was just he was wonderful and, and and fun to see. He also, incidentally, told me a story when I told him the George C. Scott story. Uh, he said, "Oh, he said when I was a young actor, I was performing at a, a, a theater up in San Francisco, and uh, Dame Edith Evans was coming in to do a play uh, after us, and it, and she was like the pinnacle of Pekin." And he said, we were having a par party where the two casts got together and he was saying, oh my God, I'm in a room with him, you know, the same thing. And she, she came over to say hello to him. And he said, I took one step backwards and sat in a punch bowl. So again, it's a testimony to uh, everybody's got somebody, you know. Yeah. Well, let's talk about you because, you know, it's interesting to me that there's kind of a thing happening right now where so much of your work is getting uh blu-ray releases and i'm seeing a lot of people i was telling you when we first started talking that like i'm seeing people who are discovering you for the first time um i mean just in the like what six million dollar man which you didn't you know you you i think you wrote eight episodes on that and you, you were involved with that you created yeah i think it was yeah i think it was more actually more like 13 uh okay. actually i wrote 10 myself and then had to rewrite the other three that outside writers had done uh, I, I think I wrote more single episodes on the show than anybody else, even though I was only there for one and a half seasons uh, before I finally, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's the good news about doing an episodic television show is when you write something, you really are pretty sure it's going to get produced because they need the scripts and they got to put stuff on the air. And that's how I got the gig to begin with when uh, Steve Bochco, who had been my uh, colleague and, and classmate at Carnegie, and he had gotten his toe into the door at Universal uh, he came to uh, was in California before I was, and um, uh, and Steve. Uh, first of all, he had to drag me kicking and screaming to writing because I never thought of myself as a writer. Uh, I, I was a really good director. I'm pulling pulling it all together. Oh, and I love that. And you're with people, and you can reach out and touch them. And uh, uh, and directing is 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 such a much more fun experience. Writing, you're alone in a closet, you know, and trying to figure out how you're going to make stuff work. And uh, and it was not my idea of a good time, but Bochco convinced me that uh, the writing was the way in because if you could, you can do a, if you're an actor, you can do bit parts and work your way up. If you're a writer, you can write on spec until somebody buys something. Uh, if you're a director, nobody wants to hire you until you've done it for somebody else. <laughs> You know, so it's it was a problem. And he said, so writing is a way in. And that's what happened, actually, because I'd written a, a spec feature still on my shelf, along with lots of other 
um, that um, uh, that I couldn't get made as a movie, but Steve gave it to Harv Bennett, who was then producing Six Mail, uh, and asked to meet me. And uh, he said, I can't help you get the movie made, but um, uh, you know, why don't you bring me some ideas for, for a $6 million man? And I came back a couple of days later, and one of the things I mentioned was The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, with the you've got this monster man sort of guy with weird legs and an arm and you know eye, and um, uh, he but shouldn't there be a bionic woman? And they sparked to that, and that's where it got going. And then pretty soon, in the midst of doing that, Harp kept inviting me. Most writers, when you're writing a spec or writing a a, a a screenplay for a TV series, they don't have much anything to do with the producing of the show, but he knew that I had a background in producing. Stephen had told him that, and, and he picked up, he started taking me into the editing room with him. And, and when we were trying to cast the bionic woman, he made me part of the casting process. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, tomorrow, I've got a, uh, a two hour session that they're doing over in Culver City for ABC radio with Lee Majors and Lindsay Wagner. <laughs> and uh, uh, and we've remained friends, uh, you know, over the years. But Harv was desperate for scripts and needed scripts in a hurry. And uh, so I wrote The Bionic Woman in, oh, I don't know, seven or eight days, nine, ten days. Uh, and he really liked it. And, um, and because he saw the potential there of me doing more for him and taking some of that load off of his shoulders of having to get, you know, that's the thing. The thing you're always looking for when you're producing an episodic television show is who can help me write it because it's like living in a garbage disposal, Heath. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and you've got so many things going and so many balls in the air all the time. Uh, but I jumped at it uh, because it gave me a chance to write and to get produced. And oh, by the way, when you're the producer, you get to hire yourself to direct, <laughs> which is uh, what happened. Uh, and Bochco had also introduced me to Steve Cannell, uh, who was at that time the story editor on Adam 12, uh, this was just before Steve wrote uh, and created the Rockford Files and really took off like a skyrocket. Um, and uh, But Steve Cannell became a real pal too, gave me a couple of script assignments on, on Adam 12 and uh, also finally managed to shoe me, shoehorn me into doing a directing gig, which turned out really well. Um, but uh, it wasn't until I got to, the, uh, to Bionic Woman that I could really sort of be the guy that was doing it as opposed to being hired to be the guy that was doing it, you know? And, um, uh, and it was, a, it was, you know, really, a, really a great opportunity. So I made the most of it and, uh, uh, and discovered that I could write and write fast, but then they wanted, then they want to <laughs> spin, off, spin off the bionic woman, of course, into a separate series. Uh, and when I first heard that, I thought, yeah, I don't think I really want to do that. Um, because it's hard enough to do one episodic television show and you're trying to write and produce two at the same time, it's, it's really <laughs> catastrophic load. Um, and, and ultimately after about three or four, I guess maybe a month or two of trying to do it, I finally said, I, I just can't do my best work or give myself time to direct if I'm constantly having to executive produce two series simultaneously. So. But I'm glad that, you know, the beautiful thing uh, about film, uh, Heath, um, is that I was trained at, at Carnegie Mellon, which it was then Carnegie Tech in the drama department there, which was a theater school. There was no 
film and certainly no television. Everybody went, oh, no, not television. I'll never do television. These are people that would later on kill for a soap opera, you know, bit part. Um, but uh, uh, but I was intrigued by, uh, but I always saw myself in the theater. At the same time, in my freshman year, the freshman week, the first day of my freshman week, I met a guy who was not in the drama department, but who was, I discovered, kind of a big man on campus. Uh, who ran uh, the newspaper, the school newspaper, and a couple of other things, and also this thing called the Film Arts Society, uh, which was once a week he would screen a, uh, a classic film from anywhere in the world, and uh, and for three bucks you could see fourteen of them over a semester. Wow. Um, and Bill, um, I mean, I'd always been a movie fan, but Bill Pence introduced me to the cinema. You know, the real depth of the cinema. And I've always called Bill my godfather uh, in, in my, my film career. And it's true um, on so many levels. And uh, Bill, Bill went on, incidentally, with his wife, Stella, to create the Telluride Film Festival and ran it for 35 years. So that's the, the guy that got me really into film. So by the time I got out to Carnegie, I had the, the theater training on the one hand that I'd gotten in, in, in Stanislavski and everything within the drama department, but I also had this whole Cinematheque experience like uh, Truffaut and Godard were getting in the Paris Cinematheque at the same time, looking at the same movies that I was. Mm -hmm. uh, so, it, you know, it was, a, it was a wonderful balance to be able to bring and, uh, uh, and that's, that's what I, that's why I enjoy directing the most is just because that's how I think and how I see and how I approach life and uh, like that. And I'm glad, but yeah, but I'm sorry, I didn't get to the point that I was going to make, I realized. And that was the thing is that no matter how wonderful a performance is live in the theater, and we've all had experiences in the theater that are, can be life-changing, they're powerful, but once they've gone and the curtain's closed, it's gone, except only in your head, you know? The beauty of film is if you capture that performance, then you got it forever. Mm -hmm. And I realized that. And uh, and that's one of the great things about the DVDs and now the Blu-rays and who knows what the next phase of, uh, of, of it will be. Uh, but it, once you've got the agent, the basic content, if it's taken care of, mm -hmm. uh, it won't go away. And uh, uh, and it's it's so touching to me when I get emails from people who have just bought the the, the six million dollar man uh, set or the bionic woman set, which is about to come out, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and they talk about how they hadn't watched it much or they had seen it a little bit when they were a kid or they'd never seen it before at all, and suddenly realized oh this this stuff going on here that's important and uh, it's not just a, a kids show either one of them uh, and, uh, and and nor did I ever write the stuff to be that way. I just wrote what I'd like to see, you know, and uh, uh, and it's it's really rewarding to to continually get, and I'm sure there'll be more even coming out. And I've got, and now the short circuit, I think I mentioned to you, is uh, this is this is the British version of Blu-ray, um, and Sony is now uh, putting it together to put out um, as a as a special edition uh, from Sony uh, in the in a in a version that will play on a uh, either on a player here in the in the states. Excellent. Uh, yeah, and there's a lot of special features on it. I had a lot of behind the scenes uh, footage. I had a lot of um, uh, rehearsal footage where these puppeteers are working with Johnny Five and getting to figure out how he works because he was he's a very complicated guy. He's uh, here's. Uh, here he is. Hey, 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 I'm alive, I'm alive. <laughs> uh, this was actually made, made for me by a fan 
uh, <clears throat> based on the, the ones that we used in the uh, in the movies. And he said, "Would you like to have it in gold, like at the end?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." And the um, the, the the fun of of, of Johnny was um, uh, there was a, there's a lot of stories, and there are a lot of stories in the um, uh, on the D that will be on the Blu-ray because I did a director commentary. But there's also um, uh, interviews with me, also going through storyboards and showing how you know we figured out how we were going to do things because it all had to be storyboarded. Uh, and then there's the experience that I had when I uh, went to lunch with John Batham, who had directed the first movie. Um, and I said, John, I'm I'm I don't understand something. They've given me like a, a 75 day shoot. Now this is a guy that's been used to doing TV movies in and in, in 24 days at the most, you know. And I read the script for Short Circuit, and I said, okay, I, I see the a little extra stuff, but I thought maybe 50 days. But why in 75 days? And Batam looked at me and said, "You've got 75 days." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, isn't that crazy?" You know. And he said. No, I had a hundred days. <laughs> and I said, why is that? And he said, well, he said, you gotta understand when you've got a robot that can do 60 different things, it means that there are 60 things that can go wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and it's always the thing that you need, you know, that's broken and that you have to wait for. And he's, he was absolutely dead right. Uh, and we used every single minute of those 75 days, uh, but we made a movie that really came out very well. And, uh, um, and it's, it's, it, was, it was a wonderful thing to sit and watch his, watch audiences react to it. It was really cool to see. It's a classic. It's a it's a I was going to say it's a modern classic, but I guess it's not it's not as modern as like I feel like it's not that long ago. But I guess it's been a while since that movie came out. 1988. It was not, it was a long time ago now. But yeah. but again, it, it holds together. And uh, of course, it's a little bit uh, uh, improper that Fisher Stevens was playing an Indian gentleman because we know that we, uh, we today we would hire Dev Patel and do it correctly. But uh, uh, but on the other hand, uh, Fisher had created the role originally and they were he was on the picture before I was actually because uh, they wanted him to be the thread that took it to tied it together. But Fisher, to his credit, went to India for like three weeks, long enough to get dysentery and really sick. But he also really steeped himself in the Gujarati community and the dialect and everything. So and and his stand in um, uh, on the set was a Gujarati uh, native. Uh, so that just before we do every take, I'd see the two of them off huddling and Fisher would be going over the dialogue to make sure he's got the dialect exactly right. And, um, uh, and you know, he's a wonderful actor. And, and Michael, Michael McKean uh, was also, you know, <laughs> he's a very funny guy. And we had a lot of laughs and a lot of fun putting it together. You just opened up. I, I want to be very respectful of your time, but you just opened about six different doorways that I, 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 <laughs> yes, I, I, I know. So like, where do we go? It's okay. I want to go. Okay, I want to go back to the Incredible Hulk TV series okay. for a second because you brought something to that that I feel like is not necessarily on the page. I'm a comic book fan. I, I and I know you know you steal. You you you're familiar with comics, but there's something about the Incredible Hulk TV series that is not on you know the Stanley thing. You brought no. this Shakespearean tragedy element to it, and then you're telling me the theater is a, you know you come from, you come from the theater. <laughs> That's that's exactly right. I mean, the 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 Hulk uh, is 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 classic Greek drama. Mm -hmm. The hero uh, or the protagonist brings down um, a curse upon himself because he's tampering with things that are better left to the gods. And when you do that, the gods don't like it, and they always come down and stomp on uh, the the particular Greek hero 
who uh, has has it's it's you know it's the classic case of hubris, of of false pride, of false self confidence. I'm Dr. David Banner, and I know how to do this, and I've figured it out. And oops, <laughs> no, you went too far, and now the curse has crashed down on top of you. And uh, uh, and it becomes a you know the, this quest to try to understand it and and to control the demon within the, the the basic underlying theme of the Incredible Hulk throughout the whole series was self control, and um, uh, and and then that certainly was obvious and, and clear in the, in the pilot and in several of the of the particular ones that I wrote myself too, um, and it was uh, because. When we were looking at episodes to stories to write, certainly sometimes we'd be looking for an arena that we could get the, the creature into where we could have some fun with it. But uh, but also we were looking for what what's it about? You know, a writer would come in and start to tell me a plot and I'd say, no, 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 forget the plot. What's it about? Is it about obsession? Like Banners was obsessed with his wife's death that he couldn't save her and he was desperate to find out and obsessed with finding out. Or is this story about greed? Or is this story about uh, alcoholism or drugs? What what is the enemy within that is lurking in this story uh, that makes it you know a, a sister show to a sister episode of, of the Hulk? And that's what we tried to do. And certainly you know you can't do it when you're doing 88 hours and, and night at night, time after time after time. But I was so fortunate to have so many really talented writers working with me, Nick Correa uh, and, uh, and Jim Parriott, who is uh, still one of my closest friends to this day, uh, and the, uh, the, kind of, uh, the kind of writing that, uh, that they brought to it, Ka Karen Harris and Jill Sherman. Uh, also, they started out as they pitched a story to me because Karen Harris's brother Robert was running Universal at the time, and he said, "And oh, my sister and her and her co-writer, they're you know they're sort of looking for a gig, and they haven't done much. Would you would you at least let them pitch you a story?" And they came in and pitched the story to me, and it was pretty good. And I said, "Okay, good, write the story." And they brought the story back, and it was okay. But I had to help show them how to fix some things. And then she brought they brought the script to me a little later. And it was a mess and I ended up having to rewrite it practically from page one all the way through. But then I brought him into the office and I said, here's why we're do I'm doing this with you because I want you to see why I made these changes so that you don't think it's just some megalomania going on here. And um, and they, they absolutely understood it and the show came out great. And a few months, a few weeks later, they came back and said, we got another story idea. And I went, oh really? Okay, well, come on in. <laughs> and, uh, and they did and it was really good. And this time the story that they wrote was really good. And then, then the script that they wrote was even better. And after a couple of more times like that, I hired them to be the story editors on the show. And then the next season, we moved them up to executive story consultants. And then finally, they were producing the show by the next season. And uh, and I love to be able to do that too, to be able to find a writer and nurture them and, and help them you know, take their next steps forward. And uh, uh, so because of the, the the writing, that's where it all worked from. And also obviously uh, Bixby, when I, I saw a, um, a TV play that he did in 1973, Heath, it was called Steam Bath. And you can get it on Netflix. And, and, and when I saw that I, it was amazing performance. It's about this group of people that are trapped in a steam bath, which turns out to be purgatory. Uh, and the little Puerto Rican attendant who is going around passing out the towels and stuff, you know, turns out that he's God. And, uh, and, and Bixby in that 90 minutes 
went through every layer of emotion and stuff that I'd never seen a performance so strong. And when I wrote the Hulk, I had him in my head and he was the first person I sent it to. And he told his agent gave it to him and his, and Bill said, I'm not even going to read anything called the Hulk. And his agent said, yes, you are. Bill." And, uh, and he, he read it and, uh, and he called me at the office the next day. I'd met him once or twice earlier somewhere and not ever worked together. But he goes, can I come talk to you tomorrow? And I said, sure, sure, come on over. And so and Bill, I always used to say that Bill would come into a room like the first eight bars of Tiger Rag. It was like, room here is a tiger, you know? And he was, because he was this force of nature, you know? It was like, oh, is this what we're gonna do? We're really, am I gonna suffer? Is it gonna be, and he get right in your face, you know? And a couple of times I even grabbed him by the crotch. He goes, ah, ah, so back off. And, uh, uh, but, uh, but I said, yes, this is what we're gonna do. It's a psychological drama. It's an adult show. It's a Greek myth. It's, uh, it's all that sort of stuff. And and uh, and he um, uh, he said, uh, let's do it, and we did, <laughs> and uh, and we were pals, uh, you know, all the way through to the day he died. Um, I was not involved in any of the later. I think he did three Hulk movies later on. I was doing Short Circuit at the time, uh, but so I was not involved in any of those. And uh, I heard they were maybe not quite as what we were doing on the series. Well, that's but, um, no, no, that's all. I, I I have never seen them to this day, so I I don't know. But friends have said mm, that's just as well. They're they're campy. They're something else. They're not what you were doing. As soon as Thor shows up, it's like no, you know, yeah. because uh, that goes back to the the. Uh, do you know about the bear story of the Stan Stanley and Tell the it. bear? Tell it. Oh, okay, well, in the second two-hour movie that I wrote, when we were because the original deal was for a movie pilot and then a second movie to sort of show how it could go as a series. <clears throat> in the second movie, I was looking for we're the adversaries for the Hulk. And he said, oh, well, I'll take him through a swamp and he has to have a fight with a bear. And Stan called me and he, I said, I was sending him the scripts. He didn't really have much input at all on it. And, uh, and he just sort of left it to me, <clears throat> but he read it. And he called me, said, I love it. I love that the fight with a bear is great, but it ought to be a robot bear. <laughs> and I said, no, Stan, now let me tell you why. He said, what do you do? You do that. That's, that's out of the, he said, no, no. He said, but on the bionic shows, I said, yes, the bionic shows are about robotics, Stan. You know, this is not, I, I stand, I said, the audience will only give you so many buys. They will only buy so much. And after that, they go, eh, I'm out of here. This is a kid's show. I'm not listening, you know. And you, I said, you'll lose the adults if we make it a robot bear, Stan. Um, because I'm trying to put you, we're asking them to buy that Bill Bixby metamorphoses into Lou Ferrigno. That's a really big buy, Stan. And, you know, we've got them that far. If we add a robot bear on top, mm, doesn't work. Um, and, uh, and we went around and around, but finally he said, you know what, you're right. And, uh, and bless his heart, uh, to the end of his life, he, he went on and on about when we were in front of big audiences at Comic-Con and other places uh, about how much he appreciated what I had done and about how it had sort of kickstarted, I guess, the whole Marvel thing in many ways. And, and again, from a comic book that nobody had really paid that much attention to, it was not a big smash hit. It was never like Superman or Batman or right. any of the big comic books until we did our series. And that's what brought it to life. And uh, uh, in spite of the terrible fright wig that Lou, I could, you hear I'm at the, uh, one of the big studios in the world and we could not get a wig that looked decent, you know, and uh, 
Uh, later years, I thought I should have shaved Lou's head. That would have helped because he had big Italian hair that they had to get down under, you know. And I said, we should have just shaved your head and then I could have done a, something that would have looked better, but too, too late, too late. But nonetheless, it worked. From a casting perspective, uh, could you tell me just a little bit about the whole thing with, I know Richard Keel was linked with that role at one point. You can actually yeah, even see him a little bit in the pilot. Yeah, there's one shot of him left in the pilot looking down the tree trunk when, that he, yep. when he tips the tree into the lake. Might nod to Frankenstein, obviously. Um, instead of throwing the girl into the lake, he's trying to get her out of the lake. Um, but uh, yeah, I wanted an actor. <laughs> You know, I wanted somebody who could act. Yeah. Uh, and Dick was, uh, uh, I had seen him before, met him a couple of times, and he was a wonderful actor. Uh, and he was seven and a half feet tall. So there was that size thing. And, uh, but but he, he just didn't have the physicality. We shot for about a week and a half or so. And, uh, uh, and Frank Price, the head of Universal, and I were just looking at some of the dailies. And I said, you know, because I, I had met Lou already by then. But Lou was, you know, 24 years old, no acting experience at all. And I, and, uh, uh, but we decided, okay, let's, let me go back to Lou. And, and you usually, you know, when you're trying to cast an actor, you can have them read a scene with you. But, you know, I had carefully written that Hulk not talk because Hulk talk sounds stupid. And uh, uh, it always fascinated me, Hulk smash. Well, yeah, we see that, you know. Uh, <laughs> But I remember guy, we, we got down on the floor and I was, I was playing the Susan Sullivan role where I'm lying on the floor, dying in his arms and <laughs> trying to see if I could get, a, get some tears and stuff. And he, you know, he worked up to it and, and bless his heart, he, did, he kept working all the way through this entire series and kept growing and has never stopped. I mean, I see him today doing speaking engagements and where he's inspirational to young people who have disabilities. And, uh, and I love the guy. I mean, uh, uh, I see him, you know, usually at least once or twice a year, uh, if it's not at a con or someplace like that, we have dinner together and, uh, and he's, uh, he's wonderful. This is my last Hulk question. And then we can, okay. move on. I know we got books to talk about. I want to hear <laughs> there's a lot. So if you could have, we have the movie, we have the TV movies, the sequel TV movies, but you made a specific point with The Incredible Hulk to end every episode on a down note. He's walking out of town. He is the lonely man. You know, he's, he's headed. He cannot have the solace that he wants. Yeah. If you could write an ending and give it the definitive, this is how The Incredible Hulk ends without Thor and without, you know, <laughs> is, he, is he able to be, can he... It, does he ever find the cure? Does he is does he die or does he just forever search for what he cannot have? It's interesting because my intent had always been if we knew we were going to uh, I kept kicking the can down the road basically is the short answer he yeah. uh, because we had no uh, thought that we were going to be canceled uh, and we shouldn't have been. <laughs> Fortunately, the guy that canceled us got canceled himself uh, a few months afterwards, but by then it was too late. Um, but uh, I had always felt that I wanted to try to do something that would bring a psychological piece to uh, to it. Um, and, uh, but I never got beyond that thought, uh, because it was all of a sudden uh, we got the rug pulled out from under us and there was just no way to do it. And the shows were already in the can basically. Um, so, uh, so I would have tried to give some thought to how can I, how can I bring this to a satisfactory resolution for this character that we have loved that everybody wished they were driving along and saw him on the side of the road so they could say, here, get in, <laughs> you know, it's true. And that combined with Joe's, Joe's music, um, I told Joe, 
in those days, almost every television show, particularly universal shows, the closing credits music was always sort of razzle dazzle, ya ha ha. And I said, Joe, it's gotta be a solo piano. It's gotta be a sad piece, not cloying. With the, the, the line we were trying to walk was pathos, but not, not cloying, not pathetic, you know, and, uh, or, or cloying. Or poor me, oh, you know, it's it's not like that. He just, he sees his problem, his quest, and he's moving on down the road. And um, uh, and I re still remember sitting at the piano with Joe, and Joe, Joe always used to say that I knew just enough about music to be dangerous. Because <laughs> he'd come up with something and I'd go, well, that's good, but how about instead of that note, it's this note, you know, and I really literally did that on the Lonely Man theme. And, uh, and we finally got to something that, uh, that really worked for me, but also worked for Joe. And his music was, it became as iconic as the show itself. I mean, you know, all you have to do is look at Family Guy and you've seen all the, the send-ups that they've done, yeah. um, including our whole main title. Uh, have you seen that? Uh, yes. the, yeah, the, the it's animated. It's on your site, isn't it? We should talk about your site too. You, you link to a oh, bunch yeah, of well, I have, I have a, yeah, my, 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 it's just kennethjohnson.us. That's, uh, that's my, uh, my website. Uh, and it's there. And um, uh, and there's also a contact link there where if people want to write to me. <laughs> when I did the first uh, uh, full-length commentary on, v, it was V, I guess, the first one I did, uh, I put an email address on it, an AOL email address. <laughs> Great. And um, uh, and it was beware what you wish for. <laughs> now suddenly, you can't imagine the thousands of emails that I get. And I really try to answer all of them uh, to the best of my ability. And, um, uh, and I've, I've still kept the old AOL, uh, website or email address because it's on that DVD and I didn't want somebody to go there and not find it. But now that it's on the website, you can just go through the website and it takes you there automatically. And I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to hear from people that have seen my stuff and liked it or not for one reason or the other. I've discovered a lot of interesting things uh, that, for example, something I didn't realize was that um, the bionic woman particularly is very, very well thought of in the LGBTQ community because she is something, she presents one thing on the surface, but underneath she's something else. And it's like, okay, I get that connection. And, uh, and that's something that, that really struck me uh, because I've always been fighting stereotypes and prejudice and discrimination in, in my whole career. I was I was, you may know, I was raised in a very, very bigoted, anti-Semitic household, uh, an only child. Uh, and I heard all the slur words and racial epithets every single night as I was growing up. And I don't know, I don't know Heath and can't explain how I escaped that. Uh, and not only escaped it, but really sort of made it one of my missions in life uh, to chip away at that time, that kind of intolerance and prejudice. Johnny Five is uh, is one of the things I said to uh, Jeff Sagansky because I didn't want to do the movie at the beginning, and 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 then finally I said, well, look, the script that you showed me is missing <clears throat> some depth to it, because what you've got really here the possibility of is the Elephant Man, and Jeff said, what are you talking about? I said, it's funny about it's a show about a funny little robot. I said, I know what it is, and we won't lose any of that, but but it's also about a, a stereotype that the audience or the viewer can't get past the face of Johnny Five. You see this and you think, how can that be a human soul in there? And, uh, and it's the same way with uh, people of color or people with have different shaped eyes. And, you know, it's always the other. And, 
And that's what Alien Nation, of course, gave me an opportunity to do was because Fox thought they had with this movie Lethal Weapon with Aliens. And I sort of was, thought it was sort of like Lethal Weapon with Coneheads. It was weird. Uh, but uh, or Miami Vice with Coneheads, I guess is how I described it. But when I went to Fox and said, uh, OK, I can do something with Alien Nation, but what it needs to be about is intolerance and and prejudice and discrimination, something that's more akin to the original in the heat of the night. I said that I can really do something with. And uh, uh, and we loved it because, you know, we could say outrageous things <clears throat> without offending anybody because they were aliens <laughs> and who knew, you know, and I'm proud of proud of what we did because it's uh, it's really, really good stuff that really made people think also, too, and won some Emmys along the way. And uh, uh, and it's uh, and also of, of all the work that I have done, um, I, I think probably V I'm the most proud of Heath because it all came out of my little pea brain, you know, and in one way or another, some of the other things that I've done, like the Bionic Woman or the Hulk or whatever, were uh, things that I didn't create myself, you know, that I took and made something different out of. But, but uh, on V, it, it was really, uh, uh, you know, my own head, and and I'm still the proudest of it. And I'm proud of the fact that it's the highest rated work of science fiction in the history of television, uh, which still sort of staggers me. But it's true. We had uh, a 40 share, 80 million people just in North America. And the following year, you know, I was out against the Olympics in 1984, and we beat the Olympics around the world two to one. It was like, it was like crazy. But the show that I had the most fun on was Alien Nation. Uh, we, uh, because we were doing something that had substance and had depth and had messages to get out there, but also we never stopped laughing. Uh, the cast and crew that I put together with uh, Eric Pierpoint and Terry Trees and Michelle Scarabelli and uh, Gary Graham and, and Jeff Marcus. I remember when I called Jeff and I said, I got a role for you. Uh, and he said, oh, is it a troubled young man? I said, no, actually it's a, it's a, a, a mentally disabled uh, alien janitor, Jeff. <laughs> and he said, Oh, okay, <laughs> and, and came along, and bless his heart, you know, he stayed with it. Um, so it's um, it, it has been the, the whole thing about intolerance and discrimination is something I'll just keep fighting to the to the end of the end of my time. And uh, uh, and I get into it actually in some ways I get into it in in, in Sherlock Holmes in Holmes coming. Here's my book. Um, this Wonderful is transition. Uh, I was gonna. I was oh, yeah, gonna you like that? Was that smooth? Oh, what's that over there? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Th this actually is. Uh, I was. I suggested the cover idea because uh, one of the scenes takes place. Two of the important scenes take place on Pier Seven in San Francisco, and that's where this photograph was taken. This is Pier Seven. It's the most spectacular viewpoint in San Francisco, because you look in this direction and you see all of the city, uh, including the tower, and uh, and you look the other direction and you're looking at all the bridges and it's 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 really great. So I suggested this idea for the for the cover and uh, uh, the uh, artist, uh, Alenka, who works with um, Blackstone Publishing. This comes out on November 1st um, and it's uh, uh, it's a uh, um, the simple version, the short version of it is the, that this, there's, there's this brilliant real life Victorian detective and master chemist who'd become known to the public as Sherlock Holmes, although that was not his real name. And he was inspired by his friends, H.G. Uh, Wells and Jules Verne to, to devise a steampunk method to hibernate himself in 1899. And he did this because he was depressed and <laughs> sinking into cocaine addiction. Uh, and uh, and they were fearful for his life. 
And, and, but he thought, by, well, maybe if I explore the future, Wells suggested it to him. And uh, of course, the time machine was a fiction, but this was a master chemist and he thought he could maybe do it. And when he's awakened uh, and his life is saved by this young Dr. Amy Winslow in today's San Francisco, he's still the same egoistic, eccentric, uh, cocaine addicted, uh, sexist genius, uh, but he's a, a hundred years out of sync. So now his brilliant deductions are sometimes uh, funny or sometimes really dangerous. And Amy becomes his reluctant new Watson, having saved his life, the old Chinese proverb, you save someone's life, you become responsible for them. Uh, and she tells the story just as John Watson told the story in the original Doyle stories. Um, and um, so the tone of it is, is really sort of classic, suspenseful Sherlock Holmes, but uh, I've tried to get some some of the fish out of water humor into it that it really uh, makes it play funny. Um, and there's a surprising spark of romance because she is a very attractive young woman, but he's never had really much interest in women before now. <laughs> you know? And uh, uh, so there's um, uh, there's a lot of good, a lot, a lot of fun in it. It's a fun book and I was really, really happy to, to uh, get it out there and Blackstone. It's actually is available on Amazon right now for pre-sale, although it doesn't come out until um, uh, November 1st. And, and in September, we'll be recording the audio book for it. We've just hired a wonderful British gentleman to do the, the role of Holmes. And uh, Francesca uh, Ling, who has done some other audio book for me, will do Amy. And I'll do a few voices myself because uh, I do a spectacular Daffy Duck. And I'm gonna try to slip that in somewhere. You know, but uh, um, I was I was lucky when I was in college uh, at Carnegie. Uh, I was trained by Edith Skinner for four years, and and she had studied with the original Henry Higgins. Yes, there really was a Henry Higgins, not that name, but uh, that guy. Uh, and Edith could listen to you talk for thirty seconds, Heath, and tell you what corner of what town you were from. She was extraordinary and uh, a great great teacher. You you keep writing too. I know you. It's it's interesting. You you have so many different uh, director, writer, screenwriter, and in, novelist as well. Is there any what what frontiers have you yet to explore that you might still <laughs> want to, to tackle? No, I, you know I'm I'm I'm. It's funny. I I always uh, had this image of myself being rather like John Huston, dragging my respirator around on the set with me until I finally just pass out and say cut wrap. That's a, that's a wrap and fall over. And uh, Susie was going to uh, needlepoint a little sign to hang on my director's chair that just said DNR, you know, do not resuscitate. If he falls over, let him go. Um, but, um, uh, but when you get to be of an age, it gets to be more difficult to get those directing jobs that you'd like to have. And, uh, but one is still creative and wants to be. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's probably where the, the writing the books came from. I, uh, uh, both the Man of Legends, which uh, I wrote in 2017, which became a bestseller, uh, had started out as, uh, as with the idea of being a feature. But in that case, I realized that uh, I had a much deeper, bigger story to tell. But it allowed me to just really exercise my, my creativity. And, and the fun thing about writing a novel is that you don't have anybody telling you what to do. <laughs> you know, you can do it and they either buy it or they don't. Uh, and fortunately, I've been happy to have uh, all of the novels that I've written be you know, bought and gotten out there. 
uh, you know, and that's fun. Uh, no, my I still would uh, rather be on the stage and uh, with the actors and my pals uh, than than anywhere else. Also, I teach. Uh, I mean, I've been back in 2000. Uh, Carrie Keene, an actress and a friend of mine who's also a, a wonderful drama coach, uh, said, "Why don't you create a directing class?" And I said, "Oh, come on, you know." She, she said, "No, just sit down and start making an outline, and see what happens." And she she badgered me into it, and I started writing it. And I, after about two hours, I remember shouting out to Susie, you know, you know what, I know stuff, <laughs> you know, and you don't think about it when you're doing it, Heath, you know, about the, how you go about becoming and directing. And uh, so I put together for, for initially for UCLA uh, and taught it there for, I don't know, six or eight years, as well as USC and um, uh, the Loyola School and the New York Film Academy, where I've really been doing it for pretty consistently three or four times a year. It's like a four- uh, four sessions seminar uh, that, uh, you know, that just, it's called the boots on the ground. You know, it's like life in the trenches. That's what it's called is uh, the filmmaking experience, life in the trenches. Cause I want to give the students, the, the master students, a sense of what it's really like to be there having to face this stuff while the bombs are going off around you. Uh, and, um, and that's great fun. And, uh, and I've been doing that for um, oh gosh, almost two decades now. Uh, in addition to whatever else I'm doing. And uh, there's also some talk of, uh, uh, of doing a, uh, a sequel to a Disney movie that I did. Um, of course, I did one called Xenon that had a life of its own for a while and was very highly rated. And then I did one called Don't Look Under the Bed, uh, which uh, was a Halloween movie and a little scary. Uh, and now there's talk of uh, doing a sequel uh, with the same two actors, Aaron uh, um, Chambers and uh, Ty, and Ty Hodges, um, and there's some interest at uh, at Disney Plus for uh, going back and doing something that would not be a Disney Channel kind of movie, but something a little more mature uh, that talks about today's world and where we are. So that's in the works right now, and that's uh, an exciting prospect. That's great. There's so much going on, and as I was saying, this is a great <clears throat> time for people to catch up with what you've. What you've done over the years, because it's all getting reappraised, it's all getting represented in the best quality versions ever and more access than ever before, too. So uh, it's, it's very exciting. And I'll, I'll put a bunch of links in the description of this video where people can pick these things up to your Super. to your site as well. Uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. One of the easiest <laughs> interviews I've ever done. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's I hope I hope I didn't ramble too much and feel free to edit out whatever you don't want. And, uh, you know, there you go. But um, uh, it's it's been wonderful. Let me know when it go when you when when you're putting it up so that I can uh, put it on my site, too, and let people know where to find you. I certainly will. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of the day. OK, you too. Thanks. Eve. Take care. There you have it. My interview with Kenneth Johnson from the summer of 2022. I feel myself slipping into radio voice. Uh, it's hard. I got a microphone right here in my face. It's hard not to do the voice. That was Kenneth Johnson from the summer of 2022 coming at you from uh, the Serial Midnight Podcast, episode four. Kenneth Johnson, a man who's been everywhere, he's seen everything, he's done so much. Interviews like that are hard because you don't want to ask, you know, like how many th- how many people do you think have been like, Mr. Johnson, what was it like to work with Lou Ferrigno? What do you think about uh, Stan Lee, about Marvel Comics? Have you seen Avengers? Like, you don't want to ask him the same questions that he gets asked all the time. So I wanted to do a unique interview, but also hit the hits. Because I want to know, like, what does he think about Lou Ferrigno? I mean, I know I've heard him in other interviews, but, you know, you got to hit the, you got to play the hits. Uh, But I wanted to get him 
talking about some of this other stuff. And so I think that this interview has some value beyond what maybe you guys have heard. I'm going to tell you peek behind the scenes when this interview was over, he emailed me and he said, thank you so much for the interview. Uh, it was great to walk down memory lane and to talk about my friend Vincent and to go to some of the places that we went to and the conversation. So I'm proud of that. I'm honestly, you guys, I'm proud of that. Uh, I'm also proud of the conversations that we have coming up because I've seen the schedule and I know the interviews that are still coming. This one was from the archive, but they're not always going to be from the archive. Some of these are going to be, you've got a lot of new stuff coming. Uh, really, I'm just going to try to, to, to record new conversations while also capitalizing on the archive that I've already built because I've talked to so many excellent people, so many excellent people. They're most triumphant. Um, but it's going to be fantastic. This is Noir Vember. It's November as I'm recording this, but that's also Noir Vember. Now, you guys know, if you watch the YouTube channel, and if you hit up serialatmidnight.com, because I know you do, uh, you know that I love me some film noir. I'm a huge film noir fan. If you're Canadian, you're probably taking issue with how I'm pronouncing it. Uh, but you know that I'm really, really big on crime films of the 40s and the 50s, uh, and I, I don't watch noir any more or less during November than I do other times of the year. But I know that a lot of other people are, right? A lot of people are watching more noir noir than they would any other time of the year because of that hashtag. Hash, the, hashtag the, the hashtag and they want to share it with people. They want to get involved in the community. I, I appreciate and respect this. So I'm going to be doing some noir content, some extra noir content for the month of uh, November. So one of our conversations coming up is going to be directly connected to that. And uh, I'll leave you to speculate as to who and what that might be. But uh, it's, I'm telling you guys, it's an exciting time for Serial at Midnight. The channel and the, the podcast and the website just continues to grow. The access that we get to people is uh, it's, it's better than ever. And I'm just excited. That's really what it comes down to is I'm just excited because I love this. I love sharing my passion with you guys. Uh, what do we need to say for the podcast? So please rate, review, and subscribe. Those are the big things. Subscribing is step one. Maybe we should do this in reverse order. So subscribe, review, and rate. I don't know. Uh, you, if you, if you're appreciating this podcast, if you're enjoying what you hear, please subscribe. I do not want you to miss an episode, and uh, that's how you directly support this channel. You can email the show at serialmidnight at gmail.com. And, uh, as always, you can, you know, I'm, here's the thing. I'm everywhere. I'm on the Twitter. I'm on the Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on YouTube. I've got the website. Um, I think I'm on more, sometimes, sometimes I'm on TikTok, which I don't really like TikTok, but sometimes I do things there too. Cause I'm like, all right, this movie gets a one minute review and then that's TikTok. Um, but I don't dance and I, you know, my pants don't fall down when I'm reading, you know, doing the review or anything like that. So I don't know that I belong there. Uh, my daughter's like, you do. Do we need content like that where it's people talking about what they love? And I'm like, yeah, but people only want to see other people dance or have their pants fall down. Or that thing that, <laughs> that thing where people are just in like, you know, showing bikini. Like I'm in, I'm fully dressed and now I'm in a bikini. Uh, the subscriber rate on TikTok just went up because of this, uh, because of that comment. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up episode four here. Remember to check out Kenneth Johnson's book. Holmes coming is now available. There's a link in the description of this show, so you should be able to scroll down and boop, there it is. And uh, thank you so much. Until next time, I will catch you later.